The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. studying God's Word in Luke chapter 4 as we've begun with this gospel now for a number of weeks, moving selectively to key passages in Luke. We read this very important part now at the opening of the public ministry, something very private with Jesus and the enemy of our souls that had to happen. Listen to God's Word, Luke 4, beginning at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands, so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Father, teach us in this deep, important scene from your Son how you are with us in such times. We pray for his sake. Amen. I'd ask you to picture a couple of scenes in your mind. One is a sales representative. We have many such people in our congregation who have to travel, go to different cities, In the course of a given week, they're in and out of hotels in several cities, perhaps. It's the end of the week. They're tired, checking into yet another nameless hotel, facing an empty evening. What do I do all evening long? Certainly reviewing the television, anyone who stays in hotels these days knows that you can't even turn it on without being faced with the alternative of X-rated movies, pay-per-view. A salesman's tired. He's lonely. He's been away from his wife for a week. And he thinks, here I am. No one sees me. What does it matter? Who would care if I indulge? A young couple is deep in debt. They've already 
taken on in easy credit far too much and have come to the conviction that something has to happen because they're paying more in interest and debt payments than for anything else. And yet, mom and dad, the in-laws are coming for a two-week visit and wife reminds husband that they just got this new card application. Easy approval, quick approval, and for a very low interest rate, more credit available. Husband, we really could use new living room furniture before mom and dad get here. I could elaborate, of course, at any length, and you know I'm talking about examples of temptation. Maybe those aren't temptations that face you at all. And if we spun out a dozen or 20 or 100 examples, perhaps we wouldn't hit upon the place where temptation particularly intersects with your life, but it does in some area. Every Sunday, among those words that come out of our lips and our minds that we really don't think about are the words in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, lead us out of temptation. Lord, you won't lead us there, but we know we're going to get there, and we look to you to lead us out. Do we really expect God to provide an answer to that prayer? And what would his provision look like in your life? I'm convinced that thousands of Christians have never rightly pondered nor understood that great mystery of God and man in one person, Jesus Christ, and what it meant meant for Jesus, the real man, to be tempted. A couple weeks ago, I was saying that many compare Jesus as if he was, in a sense, that IBM computer that beat the Jeopardy champions back in February, just buried them because it was so perfect and so fast in answering all the questions. And people think, well, that's a little bit like Jesus. He He doesn't look like a computer. He looks human, and he acts human, but we really know that inside he's a computer. He's a divine computer who can only make divine responses. Well, that's wrong. He was a man. And when people are confused about this great mystery of God become man, we, to protect the reputation of God, say, well, if we have to choose one or the other, I'll, I'll choose him being more like God than like man. And therefore, people say, well, I don't understand this temptation thing. Jesus could not sin. He was God, they would say. He could not sin. So how could he be tempted? I'm asking you to see today that that is a wrong construction, a wrong way of understanding the God-man. The startling thing that we come to understand is, as a real man, you have to say, Jesus was able to sin, but he never did. And for that reason, he knows more about temptation than any person who's ever walked on this earth. Luke 4, you see, launches the public ministry with a private incident. He's been through the baptism. He's been recognized there in the Jordan River. He's received that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which meant power and wisdom and authority for his life and his ministry. Then we have this genealogy. I've chosen not to go over that separately, although it's profitable. I will just go over it in this way. 
Notice if you glance back at chapter 2 that the genealogy is introduced about Jesus. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Then the long genealogy ending this way. Son of Adam and son of God. Now in that sense, those two phrases summarize everything the first three chapters of Luke has been bringing to us, introducing Jesus as a real man, a boy in the temple, a real child of Mary, Nevertheless, the Son of God, Son of Adam, Son of God. Now, immediately, he is thrust into this way of preparing himself and being tested for the ministry that he has as Son of Adam and Son of God. Three or four, actually four, very quick details I must note for you that help you grab things that are happening here, and they're, they're all right at the beginning of chapter 4. First, it says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. Remember last time, he was drenched in the power and wisdom of the Spirit who gave him very remarkable capacities and opened the curtains, you might want to say, from his life as a carpenter in Nazareth to now being the miracle worker and the great teacher who teaches with such power and authority. He didn't become the Son of God. He always was, but the Holy Spirit opened those capacities in a far greater way, and now leads him as the first act of his public ministry, you could say, to march right up to the gate of hell and knock on the front door and meet the one who dwelt there. Because the ministry of Jesus throughout was very much a confrontation with the powers of sin and death. Secondly, it happened in the Spirit's power. It happened in a certain place in the wilderness. That's significant. Bible scholars see this temptation as being the reversal of what the first Adam experienced in a garden, in a lush place provided in every way with with food and good things. And you remember when Adam sinned, that garden became a wilderness and Adam and Eve were expelled from it. Well, here's the Judean desert considered by New Testament scholars to be the anti-Eden As far as a symbol goes, Jesus was in the place that the ruin of sin caused. That's what the wilderness is in the Bible. Israel wandered in the wilderness 40 years. Wilderness represents the lost and ruined condition of man, and Jesus went there to start correcting that condition. Thirdly, notice the adversary of Jesus, and he is called the devil. Luke the doctor, the scientist, would confront our pseudo-sophisticated age who would say, what do you mean, the devil? Do you really think there's a person called the devil? Luke said, there sure is. Evil has a face. Whether he appeared in a physical body or not or faced Jesus visibly or whether his power came against the mind and the will, and this was all an interior temptation, which I tend to believe is perhaps the better way to understand it. This was the prince of this world, the opposer, the liar, the usurper, who also comes to tempt you and me. One more introductory detail. How in the world do we know anything about this passage that I read? No video cameras, no reporter there with a notebook. It's obvious Jesus had to tell about this at some time. He had to have told his disciples what happened, and it came thus to Luke. And this intensely personal, vulnerable time, 
He is the real man, the God-man, was willing to tell how he was taken to the brink and almost stepped across. Whether Satan was really there as a body, as a hand you could shake or something, isn't really an issue. It was an intensely real conflict for Jesus. He began his ministry where Adam and Eve began. They, as you know, fell, and their fall had catastrophic consequences for all mankind. If Jesus fell at any point, the consequences would be even more catastrophic. There would be no cross, no resurrection, no justification by faith, no sanctification, and no heaven. Everything rode on this. Now let's examine each of these temptations in a fairly concise way, and I hope to have time at the end to show you something that brings them all together. First of all, the first confrontation for Jesus was a temptation to distrust God's provision of material needs. You might be a person who, for health reasons, fasts once in a while. There are some people who recommend that every now and then. Do it carefully. Make sure you drink water, drink fruit juice, and so on. People tell us it cleanses your system. Maybe you've done it. I actually were times earlier in my life when I did. You can look at me and say, he hasn't been doing it lately. Okay. I think I maybe fasted a day and a half one time. Oh, it's really hard. Forty days is inconceivable. Medical studies would tell you of actual fasts of people in history that at 40 days, you're approaching the edge of death. You're not just using fat tissue anymore. You're burning muscle. You're burning vital tissue, and your body systems are soon going to begin to break down. Jesus was approaching the physical edge of death. I, I, I almost chuckle when I read the understatement. At the, at the end of 40 days, he was hungry. You better believe he was hungry. He was beyond hunger. His condition was critical. Now, as far as we know, he had worked no miracle yet, and yet surely at this time he had the consciousness and the awareness of the power to work miracles. And so he's hungry, and he sees in a round loaf or a round stone, that is, that would look the size and shape of a loaf of bread, and he thinks of it and thinks, why couldn't I make that stone? into a loaf of bread. And just, just think of the thought process that was going on. He'd say, hmm, I'm hungry. I could turn that into bread. Nobody's here. And anyway, why is it sinful? I, I'm going to later, if he knew this in his ministry, make bread to feed 5,000. What could be wrong with feeding myself right here? And maybe you say, I don't see any problem with this. Well, there is maybe two problems. One is that in order to do this, he must step outside the order of nature for his own selfish purposes to be met. He must temporarily suspend the rules of living within the constraints of ordinary humanity. You and I can't change stones into bread. And Jesus is pledged to come and live within the real humanity of you and myself so that he can go to a cross for us. He must live by the rules. He can't take a supernatural shortcut when nobody's looking. Maybe another thing to realize is that God, by His Spirit, led Jesus there. If He led Him to be in a place where He would be famished after 40 days, then God was going to lead Him beyond that. 
And he was being asked to trust the leading of God when it didn't look, perhaps, like God was leading. Perhaps the father wanted his son to go to this very edge of being physically famished, to feel what it was like to be starving, because he is the God and Savior, you know, of all those hundreds of thousands and even millions of people who right now in this world are starving to death. I don't have the statistic of how many children will starve during the time I preach this sermon. But Jesus is Lord of them, and he came to feel their deep helplessness. Here is a chance for him to believe that God in his all-wise providence who led him into this would lead him through it. And we have to believe that as well. It makes me realize how many physical cravings there are that can lead us off the path of obedience and discipleship to God. It isn't just food, of course. It's money, it's possessions, it's clothes, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's sex, all the things that in one form or another we say, well, I'm not getting my share of this, or or, here's an attractive package of this that I could take a hold of, and I'm not sure anybody's going to be hurt by it, and God doesn't seem to be dropping it in my lap, so why not grab it? After all, I've got a problem. I'm miserable, and this will make me happy. It's amazing how people shop to make themselves happy. Never quite figured that one out. But we do all kinds of things with material substances, chemical substances, sexual pleasure. And we say, God isn't providing this. I can just take it. And besides, it's got its hooks in me, and I need it now, so let's take it. Jesus said, our life is never the sum of any material substance or possession. Secondly, much more we could say about each of these. Secondly, the seduction came as a temptation to use worldly power for godly goals. You know, in the very literal way, do I believe Jesus was really tempted? Absolutely, 100%. And yet, verse 5 talks about a mountain over which he could look to see all the kingdoms of the world. There's no mountain that tall in Palestine, and even Mount Everest doesn't give you that much of a view. I have to think there's vision of a spiritual kind involved here. That in his spirit, Jesus saw the kingdoms of the world. He saw Egypt. He saw Rome. Maybe the barriers of time were even lifted and he saw down the corridors of time the might of the United States of America and the nuclear arsenal of Russia and Nazi Germany and Japan and the great powers of the world and the great cities of the world. And somehow, all conglomerated together, Satan was saying, you can rule all of this. It's real easy. It's real easy. Now, there's a lie buried in there as to whether he could give it all or not, but he is called the prince of the power of this world. We won't go into the lie part of it right now, but he said, all you have to do is recognize me as your superior, and then as my unlimited subordinate, it's all yours. I'm glad to keep Psalm 2 in mind. Psalm 2 is that prophetic passage, a wonderful psalm, in which the Lord God spoke long, long ago to say this in past tense, I have installed my king Upon my holy hill, that king is Jesus, and that psalm urges the kings and power brokers of the world to come and kiss that emperor Jesus, lest they be dashed under his foot. God already intends his son to rule the universe, 
not just America, not just military powers, not just great uh, cities of industrial production, everything. And God has a plan by which he will come to that rule and is in that rule now, and, and the absolute nature of it will finally be revealed one day. But there's a way for him to get there, and the way was to go via a torture rack devised by Rome called a cross. And it would be idolatry and a sin that would split the universe in two if he took the little shortcut that Satan suggested and said, worship me. Jesus will rule the universe. He does rule the universe. Colossians says it was all made for him and by him, and he holds it together. But he would do it God's way, not this way of least resistance. You know, whenever any of us gets anywhere near a little bit of power, we want to abuse it. Maybe you say, well, that's, that doesn't apply to me. I don't have any power. Are you a parent? Are you a father? Are you a teacher? Are you a manager in a business situation? Do you have any employees? Do you have a secretary? You have some power over other people. How will you use it? Will you grab power this way and say, I'll take it for my glorification the easiest way? I'll I'll wield its prerogatives. I'll become that little tire. I laugh at, you know, Mr. Gaddafi there in, in Libya at how kind of silly he is in his blustering as a leader as if he's going to take on the whole world, and yet I act like that when I get a little power. Pastors can act like that. Elders can act like that. Anybody, parents, can take power in their family and steamroller their children to accomplish their own short-term goals without ever stopping and thinking, what is loving, compassionate, patient, Yes, firm and disciplined, but all those other things mean as I exercise power in my family. God, in his use of unlimited power, ends up, you see, wooing us much more often than he ever raises a fist to us. The third scene for Jesus, verses 9 to 12, I call it by an unusual name. Maybe you won't have thought of it this way before. The temptation to view yourself as a special case. Jesus is transported again, whether a bodily, whether his feet actually stood on the temple roof or not, or he visualized himself there. He was, saw himself on the roof of the Jerusalem temple. You've got to see the situation. The temple is a huge soaring building. There's a cliff right beside it that drops into the Kidron Valley. From the roof to the bottom of the Kidron Valley is about more than 400 feet, 40 stories. This is no little jump that Satan is saying. This is an absolute suicide leap unless God would somehow miraculously intervene. And by the way, while there's nothing in Scripture that ever says this, there was an expectation among first century rabbis that when Messiah appeared, he would show himself on the roof of the temple. Probably you can understand how they came up with that. The temple's the most prominent feature in their life, and that the Messiah would be the great person, so they visualized the great person standing on the roof of the great temple. And I think that's what's alluded to here. And Satan thinks he's got a leg up now. I notice, Jesus, you've been using the Bible on me every time. Well, two can play. Psalm 91, I'll quote it to you. 
Jesus, as Son of God, surely you know that your Father said in Psalm 91 that He would protect you at all costs and not let you strike your foot, not let you destroy yourself, in other words. So I'm quoting Scripture to you. Go ahead, show us that you are the Son of God, because if you jump, He certainly will stop you. And by the way, think of all the publicity you'll get along the way. Of course, as pre-existent Son of the Highest, Jesus was a special case. But the point here is that he refused to trade upon that. He refused to use that for the purposes of the spectacular or to actually manipulate his father to do something because he knew that the whole grand goal of his life coming into this world was what? To do the will of my father not to manipulate my father so he will do my will. And that's what this would be. You know, they said the same thing to him when he was on the cross. Those who jeered and mocked, they said, Ha! You're the Son of God. What a joke. Look at you now. If you are, we'll give you the test even now. Come down off that cross, and we will know that you're the Son of God. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know how you can know Jesus was the Son of God? Because he did not come down off that cross. He stayed on it by the mere power of his will obeying his Father. The nails didn't hold him. Any bindings on his wrists and feet did not hold him. Roman soldiers did not hold him. He held himself in obedience to his Father, and would not disobey the amazing will of his Father, and that's why he died in that place for you. We could go a long ways on how this applies to us. As God's children, even as those reborn by faith in Jesus Christ and called by the name of Christ, we do not have the right to manipulate God. And we do it, or we try to. Sometimes we get ourselves into foolish situations because of our own disobedience. We do downright dumb things, and then we see the consequences galloping towards us. And we pray. This is the first time we've prayed. And we say, oh, God, look at these terrible consequences. If you'll just turn this around, oh, God, I'll, I'll do something great for you. It's, it's exactly the same as having jumped off the temple roof and saying, God, grab me in midair and stop me. I'm the dumb person who jumped off the roof, but I expect you to fix this. Christians pray that way. We are not granted exemptions. We are not special cases. We will get cancer. We will have tragedies in our homes and our families and among our friends. We are not a special case. But God is our Father, just as he was the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, finally, I try to pull all this together I'll do it in a few minutes. By asking this important question of all this, was Jesus really tempted like you and me? I think it's very important to know this. Because once more we're faced with that mystery of God becoming man, fully God, fully man. Can't quite figure that out. I'm always leaning to one side or the other. But I'm absolutely convinced from a lifetime of Bible study and theology study and church history study, that those who would come along and overemphasize the divine and say it was impossible for Jesus to sin are wrong. 
What we need to say, rather, is the formulation of the early church, that it was possible for him to sin and possible for him not to sin, and he had to choose. And he had to keep on choosing every hour of his life and keep affirming which would he do. You see, Adam had the same thing before him. The first Adam, Jesus is called the second Adam. The first Adam there in Eden, it's possible for you to sin, but it's also possible for you not to sin. But once you sin, then it's not possible not to sin. Jesus had it before him, and what did he choose? Time and time again, he chose not to sin. And Hebrews 4.15, that was earlier in our service, now makes sense, you see. Some of you are already thinking about it. When its words say that he was tempted in every way. Do you think that's kidding? He was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. This idea that the Son of God could not know temptation, C.S. Lewis refuted in a brilliant way. He, I quote him a little bit here. He said, it's a silly idea to say that good people who don't appear to sin don't understand temptation. Lewis said, in fact, only those who, who habitually resist temptation actually know what it's all about. He said the soldier, for example, he, he had fought in World War I, and Lewis said the soldier who sends up a white flag and surrenders to the enemy when the first bullet is fired and, and then goes behind enemy lines for the rest of the battle doesn't know anything about battle. Don't ask him what a battle is. He doesn't have a clue. Lewis said if you want to know what a battle is, talk to the soldier who fired his rifle until the barrel grew hot and fought and fought and fought and never gave up. You want to know what temptation is? Ask the man who always faced it and always resisted it and always obeyed and valued the will of his Father. Now, we can't expect to be like Jesus in that respect. Of course not. And there will be times when we will say in our lives, temptation is so strong, I just cannot help myself. Maybe that's when we need Hebrews 2.18 that points us to a Christ who, it says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, is able to help those who are being tempted. How? Well, with the same weapons he used. The weapon of Scripture, number one. It's no accident that Jesus kept responding, it is written, here's what God says, You know, when I'm being told lies, when I'm being told half-truths, when I'm being seduced and my mind is turned inside out about what is right, let's go to something we know is true and hold on to that. And when your mind is soaked in Scripture, the more it is soaked in Scripture over time, the more easily you know in those difficult places of life where the line is drawn. And you'll stop short of it instead of wake up way after you've crossed it. Maybe it's a poor illustration, but it makes me think of the dog fences that a lot of you have in your homes. But many of you have these electric fences. You know what it is. You know, the dog learns the landmarks in the yard where he's going to get a little jolt on the neck if he goes too far. That's what Scripture does in a sense. It teaches you the boundaries and teaches you to say, well, God blesses me when I walk in the boundaries, so I really ought to know where they are because if I'm just going to always be shooting outside the boundaries and then I ask him to bless me, 
it's not going to work so well. A second weapon of Jesus besides Scripture is the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit. And let me remind you once again, I made this point somewhat last week, you have the same Holy Spirit in you. If you're a child of God who names the name of Jesus as Lord, you have the Holy Spirit or you don't belong to him in the first place, according to Romans 8. Therefore, while that Spirit may not be stirring in you with the same abundance, unlimited power as it did in Jesus, it is the same Spirit. And you can, in a time of temptation, when you're just ready to give in and say, who cares, nobody's looking, it doesn't matter, instead say, Holy Spirit, help me. Give me a strength that is not my own. And with supernatural help from our unseen spiritual resident, Scripture says we can resist and the enemy will flee. Not slink out the side door, run in the other direction. And so I say this in summary, it was as a man in severely weakened condition that Jesus withstood the devil. His victory that day and days to follow over temptation were one in the same flesh that you inhabit, using the same Bible you read and empowered by the same Spirit who dwells in every Christian. Let me close with this. Martin Luther always had a great graphic way of stating things. Asked one day how he overcame temptation Luther said this. He said, The devil comes knocking on the door of my heart, and he always asks, Who lives there? The Lord Jesus Christ goes to the door for me and tells that old snake, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. Thanks be to God. I pray that's true for you. Our Father, arm us with the power of your Spirit. Give us wisdom that only your Word can give. Strengthen us. We are weak people, vulnerable to every kind of attack. It comes when we're least expecting. It comes when we are expecting, and we still fall down. We ask, O God, that you might work in us that which would glorify you and do it by the power and example of this Son of yours, through whose victory we pray. Amen.